This is The Guardian. Today, sleaze, strikes and seatbelts. What does Rishi Sunak's first 100 days as Prime Minister tell us? It's the job that he seemed to have spent his life in training for. Public school educated, Oxford and Stanford graduate, with a high-flying career in finance before becoming a Conservative MP. Then Chancellor, now Prime Minister. I will unite our country, not with words, but with action. I will work day in and day out to deliver for you. Seven years since he entered politics, and one failed bid to become party leader later, Rishi Sunak finally got the top job. But how is he doing? When you start off as Prime Minister, you inevitably get a honeymoon, and Boris Johnson had a big, long honeymoon. Even Liz Truss had a, a brief honeymoon until that disastrous mini-budget. What Rishi Sunak hasn't had is a political honeymoon. The Guardian's political editor, Pippa Crera, has been following the trail of sleaze, sniping and mass strike action that has engulfed Rishi Sunak's time in office so far. Braving the elements this morning, Border Force staff launched a second round of strikes today. Hello, the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has sacked the chairman of his Conservative Party, Nadim Zahawi. His dismissal comes after... His job is a daunting one. Restore calm to the economy and to his own party, as both teeter on the brink of imploding. It's been an underwhelming start. I think we're getting what we expected, which is that Rishi Sunak is actually behaving more like a chancellor in Number 10 than he is as a prime minister. He doesn't have as much sort of natural political instinct as some of his predecessors. Meanwhile, Labour are surging ahead in the polls and Keir Starmer is piling the pressure on. He can't even deal with tax avoiders in his own cabinet. Yeah. Is he starting to wonder if this job is just too big for him? Yeah. So what can Rishi Sunak do next? And is he up to it? From The Guardian, I'm Noshi Nikbal. Today in Focus, understanding Rishi Sunak's first 100 days as Prime Minister. Pippa it does seem to have gone in a flash, but we are already at Rishi Sunak's 100th day in office. Can we go back to that first week? And can you remind me what Sunak promised to do when he first entered Downing Street? My abiding memory was that Rishi Sunak was taking over a Conservative Party, which was broken. He had a very difficult hand when he came in and he stood outside Downing Street and he made some really key promises. But foremost amongst them was that he would govern with integrity, integrity professionalism, professionalism and accountability at every level. And accountability at every level. Trying to put clear blue water between him and his predecessors who had had much more complicated relationships with the issue of integrity. 
And he also put the economy front and centre, saying that he was going to be honest with people, that things were hard. After the billions of pounds it cost us to combat COVID, in the midst of a terrible war that must be seen successfully to its conclusions, I fully appreciate how hard things are. So it was a tough message, but it was a message that he hoped would get across the fact that he realised where his party had gone wrong and he was determined to put it right. And so how did that go in the early weeks? Just how big a job was it for the PM to restore integrity and credibility to Downing Street and the party? I think there was sort of a collective feeling at Westminster, probably in the country at large, of relief because things had been so frenzied under Liz Truss that having Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt as Chancellor at his side, suddenly it felt like the grown-ups were in charge again Mm -hmm. and that they weren't going to do anything completely bonkers, that they were sort of sensible politicians, regardless of what you thought of their own political take on all sorts of different issues. And things definitely quietened down. I mean, the pace of politics prior to that had been full pelt, foot firmly down on the accelerator, and it started to ease off and... And so I think actually initially in those first few few weeks, people welcomed that slightly slower pace and more sober approach to everything that was going on. Nonetheless, Sunak knew his appointments would be scrutinised. So who did he pick and how did that play out? So actually, there were early signs in the first hours of Sunak's administration that some of his picks for his cabinet might not be as straightforward as he as he might like them to be. Right, let me give you some more details of the main moves in that reshuffle by Rishi Sunak. Now, Jeremy Hunt will remain in post as Chancellor of the Exchequer. Suela Braverman, who resigned six days ago for breaking the ministerial code, has been reappointed as Home Secretary. The first, of course, was Suela Braverman, the Home Secretary, who had been sacked just six days previously for breaches by Liz Truss. And yet Sunak felt that she should be restored to her role. And that really caused quite a lot of alarm. Was his Home Secretary right to resign last week for a breach of security? He he asked uh, about the Home Secretary. The Home Secretary made an error of judgment, but she recognised that. She raised the matter and she accepted her mistake. And that's that's why I was delighted to welcome back into a united cabinet that brings experience. He did that effectively because he needed in the run-up to taking over as Prime Minister to win over and reassure the right of his party that he was going to be, he was going to have a broad church in cabinet. But it was a very controversial appointment. So that was just a, a hiccup, if you like, at the start from him. He knew that there were going to be contentious choices. So why did he still go ahead with them while promising us the opposite? I think he felt that after the best part of 12 years of Tory government, it's going to be pretty difficult to bring in new faces that the public didn't already know, that Westminster didn't already know. And then there were people that had helped him during his campaign. I mean, Gavin Williamson, he obviously made the decision that he wanted him inside the tent rather than out. He was a maverick minister. Gavin Williamson has had four jobs in Cabinet in five years. And it's not hard to find Tory MPs with a view. One who served in government with him said he's a bully and always has been. Another senior Tory called him thoroughly incompetent, thoroughly pathetic, a nasty piece of work. And Gavin Williamson knows where, you know, everyone's skeletons are and uh, has shown over many years that he's 
prepared to resort to the dark arts when it comes to, to party management. So Sunak knew that when he appointed him. And Dominic Raab is the other one. I mean, he, they're sort of really close political friends. And Raab really went to the wall for Sunak during the first leadership contest. So it was kind of like a hodgepodge cabinet trying to sort of do all these different things. Keep the right happy, reward his allies, make sure he had support in the cabinet and have some people that he regarded as being as being useful. But it was clear to anybody looking at the lineup that there were going to be problems ahead. And then, of course, come the allegations about Nadim Zahawi, the man he appointed as chairman of the party. Pippa, what happened here? What we now know is that Harvey was subject to an HMRC tax investigation while he was Chancellor under Boris Johnson and he settled with HMRC. He paid about £5 million, including a penalty, which he said was because of a careless approach to his his, uh, finances, but which the head of HMRC subsequently said basically means there was an error. So he was penalised for tax avoidance, the question over whether Rishi Sunak knew about that informally hasn't properly been answered. Bottom line for many people is that this was in the public domain. The media reported this before Zahawi was made party chair. It really, I think, for a lot of people is a bit incredible, really, that Sunak wasn't curious enough to ask questions about whether that had been resolved and crucially how it had been resolved. Well, it does seem clear to many in Westminster, right from the moment that news broke of Zahawi's quite complicated tax affairs, that he was going to have to go. And he didn't resign. But why did it take Sunak nearly a week to sack him? There's plenty of Tory MPs that think that Rishi Sunak didn't know anything at the end of the ethics advisor investigation that he didn't know at the beginning and that he should have seen that it was going to be politically damaging and he should have sacked Zahawi then and there. It relates to things that happened well before I was Prime Minister, so unfortunately I can't change what happened in the past. What you can hold me accountable for is, what did you do about it? You know, what I did as soon as I knew about the situation was appoint somebody independent, looked at it, got the advice, and then acted pretty decisively um, to move on, because that's what I think all of you deserve uh, from me and from, from government. He says that he wanted, as part of that sort of pledge for integrity and accountability, to make sure that due processes were followed. But I think it talks to a political naivety when already he has had to answer questions about Sirla Braverman. Uh, He's already lost Gavin Williamson from his cabinet after bullying allegations. Rishi Sunak, despite his best endeavours and despite trying to do things by the rules, is finding it really hard to escape these scandals which are overshadowing his first 100 days in office and which are leaving him looking at best politically naive, and at worst part of a Tory administration which is really struggling to shrug off um, sleaze and as a result is, is day by day losing trust and respect and for the public that they need to win over. But the focus is now switching to how Sunak will handle the investigation into Dominic Raab's behaviour. There have been multiple accusations of bullying. 
laid out against him by civil servants. Could we soon be seeing another departure from the cabinet? I think increasingly it looks like, yes, that it's going to be very difficult for Dominic Raab to survive. People inside number 10 say privately he's toast. And I think the problem is with Raab is that these are such widespread allegations. We, as you'll know, uh, broke the story that he was being accused of bullying by civil servants at the Ministry of Justice. The following day, we had a story that there were allegations from his time running the Brexit department. And the day after that, we had a story alleging similar from his time at the Foreign Office. What we're hearing is that dozens of civil servants have spoken to um, Adam Tolley, who's the KC that's conducting the inquiry, and that some of the evidence is really damning. There are allegations that individuals were feeling sick before meetings with him, that they were regularly in tears. And there was even more than one example of somebody, I was told, that was contemplating suicide. And Adam Tolley will have heard all of this and more. She asked about uh, the complaints. I received notification this morning. I immediately asked the Prime Minister to set up an independent uh, inquiry into them. I'm confident I behave professionally throughout, but of course I will engage thoroughly and look forward, Mr Speaker, may I say, look forward to transparently addressing any claims that have been made. And of course, Dominic Raab denies all these allegations and insists that his name is going to be cleared and that he's acted professionally throughout. So it's going to be up to that inquiry to pull all those findings together and put them to the Prime Minister. And then he will be making the decision about Dominic Raab's future. And that's just the things he can control, right? I mean, meanwhile, Boris Johnson's behaviour is also still haunting this leadership. Pippa, can you tell me what recent stink the former PM has left for Sunak to clean up? People in number 10 are, um, are really quite disgruntled that even though Boris Johnson is no longer in power, the impact of him lingers on. And there are still questions to answer about his own finances. I just want to bring you a bit of breaking news now. And Labour has reported Boris Johnson to the Parliamentary Commissioner for Standards over allegations that the BBC chairman, Richard Sharp, helped the former Prime Minister to arrange a guarantee on a loan of up to £800,000. And that's before you even get to the whole Privileges Committee inquiry into Partygate. He's certainly not doing Rishi Sunak any favours when it comes to trying to restore the Tory party's reputation for integrity. In fact, he's making it worse. And what it's all doing, whether it's Boris Johnson or Dominic Raab uh, or Nadim Zahawi, it's all really sort of reducing the bandwidth that Rishi Sunak has to concentrate on the big political issues that he wants to focus on, the economy, the NHS, immigration and others, because he's having he's being distracted left, right and centre by scandals involving some of his, his senior ministers and, and his predecessor. So it has overshadowed, despite their best efforts, uh, his first three months in office. And given that the Dominic Raab row isn't resolved yet and the Boris Johnson committee hasn't happened yet, that's likely to continue for some weeks to come. And it's not just embarrassments that they're dishing up for him. He's had some of his own personal, let's call them mishaps. Can you tell me about that? Yes, it's not been all plain sailing for him either. There's been really some unforced errors. I mean, we revealed quite early on that Rishi Sunak used a private GP, uh, I think it was back in November, and number 10 wouldn't comment. And the question kept bubbling away and kept coming up. And eventually it reached the point that they decided that they had to admit that he used a private doctor. And of course, that was right at the height 
of the difficulties that the NHS has been facing this winter. I'll answer her question. Registered with NHS GP. I have used I have used independent healthcare in the past, and I'm also grateful to the Friarich Hospital for the fantastic care they've given my family over the years. Then prompted the question is how in touch he was with what most people were experiencing when they tried to access hospitals or the GPs or the dentists. And then we had another unforced error, which was really remarkable. They, the government themselves put out on social media a video of him in the back of a car on his way to a levelling up trip up in Blackpool, Morecambe. A, a little video clip in which he was talking about the economy. Hi, one of my New Year's promises to you was to grow the economy. And today we're announcing the second And yet there he was in the back of a moving car without wearing a seatbelt, which of course is a breach of the rules, of the law. And he received a fixed penalty notice, uh, which he said he would pay up. So he's managed to, to break the law whilst in office, albeit for a fairly minor offence. And, you know, it all sort of adds to this impression that unfortunately a lot of people have of government of it being sort of one set of rules for them and one set for everyone else. And that's damaging because already Sunak had a reputation for being out of touch, given his own extreme wealth and the fact that his wife um, has non-dom status. It doesn't exactly fill you with confidence, does it? I mean, Sunak was supposed to mark a clean break from the scandals that brought down Boris Johnson. But this just feels like more of the same. Why hasn't he been able to get rid of these allegations of sleaze within the Tory party? I think there's just too much and the tide is too strong. He can't stop these waves of allegations that are coming forward about so many different members of his of his senior team. And I think, it, unfortunately for the Tories, we're in one of those situations where British politics moves in cycles and the Conservatives have been in power for so long that some of them have forgotten a time where they weren't in power. It's become the norm. And with that comes with it sort of almost like a sense of entitlement, a feeling of ownership and a feeling of really of power that that uh, you know doesn't have to take account of anyone or anything else. It does very much feel like it's in the end game for um, the Conservatives, the stretch of government, and that increasingly people feeling that it's time for a change. Tory sleaze has dominated the recent headlines, but as you said, Sunak's first big challenge was undeniably to tackle the economy, which was left in tatters by Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng's infamous mini-budget. How has he fared when it's come to restoring calm in the markets? Well, I think the very fact that he and Jeremy Hunt took the top two jobs in government after such a turbulent time had the immediate effect of calming the markets because they both have a reputation for being sensible, stable, experienced and unlikely to do anything which was dramatic or unexpected um, for the markets. They also have a very different approach to the economy from Liz Truss. They are not planning to cut taxes. That was a key promise from Liz Truss. And what we're hearing repeatedly from Treasury ministers and from the Prime Minister is that now is not the right time to do that, that cutting taxes can't happen now until you've got the economy back on track. And we've seen some really quite difficult figures for Rishi Sunak in recent days. Growth in the UK, according to the IMF, is lower than other G7 economies, other advanced economies. We look like we're on the verge of tipping into a not very deep recession, but a recession nonetheless. All the sort of forecasts are that there's a really difficult picture 
uh, in the months ahead. So I think, yes, Sunak and Hunt have managed to inject a bit of stability, but they still face a very turbulent time. And actually, that is going to be their ultimate test, not whether they can get a grip on all the scandals and sleaze in the Conservative Party, but whether they can get a grip on the economy. Well, he's also presiding over the biggest wave of industrial action for a generation. Does he have a strategy for how to resolve this huge standoff? And does he have public support on it? I think he hopes it just is all going to go away. Out of the classroom and onto the picket line. Today marks the first of 16 strike days at schools in Scotland. Now teachers in England and Wales are set to join them, with more than 90% voting to walk out in a row over pay. Now there was some talk early on about whether there would be a one-off pay deal uh, for health workers in particular, or whether there might be sort of a backdating of pay. But we haven't heard anything in the last few weeks that suggests that there's any deal on the table, and it feels increasingly like the government is planning to tough it out. They originally warned privately that they weren't going to be able to strike a deal because they wanted to basically to stick to their really tight fiscal constraints. And their concern was that if they agreed a settlement for nurses, for example, that they'd have to do it for all the other sectors that are taking industrial action as well. But it feels that even though the government says they want to talk, they don't have any plans to resolve this year's crisis. They just want to try and push forward to next year's pay deal. So we're going to continue seeing industrial action over the weeks and months ahead. And as far as the public's concerned. I think this was a real a, a sort of a misjudgment of the government. I think they thought the public would very quickly turn against public sector workers who were striking. And what we saw over Christmas when the nurses first came out was that that was not the case, that overall the public is supportive of industrial action. They, they got themselves into a right old mess over this, frankly, that they're not prepared to uh, negotiate. Uh, they're, they're talking, but they're not actually putting any offer on the table. And public support behind the striking health workers in particular is standing firm. Pippa, one of the major criticisms that you hear of Sunak is that he doesn't really have an overall vision for the kind of Britain that he wants to govern. Even though at the beginning of the year he laid out his priorities for 2023 in this big speech, what did it tell us? So what was very striking to me after that speech out in the Olympic Park at the beginning of January was that there wasn't really much of a big vision at all. Five promises. We will halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt, cut waiting lists and stop the boats. Those are the people's priorities. They are your government's priorities and we will either have achieved them or not. No tricks, no ambiguity. There was five policy pledges, three of which were about the economy bringing down inflation, for example, which was going to happen anyway, so not particularly ambitious. There was no sort of overarching um, you know, promise of a brighter future or sort of really a feeling for what Sunak stood for beyond wanting to get the economy back on track. And again, this feeds into this whole sort of sense of the Conservatives being at an endgame. I mean, what can they offer other than more of the same? And actually, the same over the last few years for many people hasn't been great. While, while I understand the absolute necessity of focusing on the economy, people also need a bit of hope. And we haven't had that from him yet. So he stood outside Downing Street when he made that first speech as Prime Minister Rishi Sunak did promise to unite his party, but the Conservatives remain divided and it leaves the Prime Minister vulnerable to rebellions. How do you think he has handled that and how has it affected the actions he's taken 
in those first 100 days? I think it's very fragile. There are big chunks of the parliamentary party that don't want him there. There's Boris Johnson loyalists that feel that he's partly to blame for the departure of of the former prime minister. There's lots on the right who are very sceptical about his plans for the economy and want taxes cut. So he's got all these different factions which he's trying to keep together. It hasn't yet bubbled up into sort of a huge row because what he's done so far is take a really quite sort of cautious approach in that any potential rebellion which has raised its head, we saw one with onshore wind, we saw one with planning, he's folded and he's compromised and he's staved off the rebellion by U-turning on on his previous policy commitment. Now, that doesn't smack of strong government and there will inevitably be a moment, and it might be over the Northern Ireland Protocol and Brexit or it might be over tax, that his party decides actually enough is enough and that and that rebellion sort of breaks out in public. Um, and that, of course, would be extremely damaging for him. Coming up, what do British voters think of Rishi Sunak as Prime Minister? Pippa, you do get to see the focus group transcripts and you're out there with Sunak around the country. How are the public responding to him? So the focus groups are fascinating because I was quite surprised having spent the first couple of weeks of this year with Sunak at speeches and events around the country that that doesn't seem to be cutting through. And quite a lot of people said in our most recent focus group that he was a bit like a submarine prime minister, that they didn't know where he was or what he was doing. So I think they need to do more to cut through. I think there are lots of people that feel a sort of degree of sympathy towards him. He inherited a pretty tough hand from Boris Johnson. And many people remember him for, of course, the furlough scheme, which was most generous of its kind. But of course, he was chancellor at a time where he didn't have to make tough decisions, where there was unprecedented public spending because of the pandemic. And what he's finding now at number 10 is that actually you do in government need to make tough choices. And um, some of those tough choices are making him look slightly weak. And inevitably, that will start to get through to the public. So I think Sunak started off his premiership uh, with a question about whether his ratings, which were higher than the party's, whether he could drag the party up. What looks like is happening is that the party's ratings, which are lower, are dragging him down. Pippa, Labour do have an unprecedented 25-point lead over the Tories in Ipsos polling. But between Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak as a choice of leader, the margins are pretty close at 39% to 33%. What does that tell us? I think it tells us that for lots of people, they don't see much between them. Neither is a big political beast in the way that Boris Johnson was, who all the public knew, who all the public had strong opinions about one way or the other. Lots of people, frankly, don't know who Rishi Sunak or Keir Starmer are. They may have heard of them, but they don't actually know what they stand for or they represent. They both have quite a similar demeanour. They're quite calm and sober. They both have um, a sort of a technocratic managerial approach almost. Neither of them is going to be sort of, you know, tub thumping and inspiring people. So what both parties feel that they need to do is create some dividing lines at the next election. Now, it's almost easier for Labour because they can point to the Conservatives' record and say we would do things differently, although, of course, we're still waiting to hear exactly what they would do differently in lots of policy areas. For the Conservatives, it's a bit trickier, and that's why I think we'll see them increasingly focus on things like small boats, on strikes, and more broadly, I suspect as we get closer to the election, we'll sort of hear more about 
sort of culture war issues. And, you know, even though it is that, it is divisive, and there are lots of people that feel very uncomfortable with some of those issues being used to create those political divides, I think that they will want to try and distinguish between Starmer and Sunak, and that's one way that they can do it. Pippa, from everything you say, it does seem like Rishi Sunak's first 100 days show us that the Tories have run out of steam, out of credibility, and even people to appoint to the top jobs. Do you think a Labour victory is looking inevitable? And what could Sunak do to turn his party around? It's never inevitable till it happens. And I've learnt through long experience that predictions are a mugs game in politics. But there is definitely a feeling in this place. We're sitting in the House of Commons at the moment. And there's a feeling in this place amongst MPs of both sides that the election is Labour's to win. Um, that the Tories, as you say, are running out of steam and that the likely outcome is that we're going to see Keir Starmer leading a Labour government after the next election. But there are, of course, Tory advisers, Sunak himself, that uh, will want to do everything that they can to make sure that that doesn't happen. And there is a glimmer of opportunity for them in terms of the economy. Some say his only chance of winning the next election is getting the economy back on track and performing more strongly and people feeling that they've got more money in their pockets, whether it's through tax cuts or inflation coming down, sooner than all the forecasts expect so that he can turn around and say, look, we've had some really difficult economic times, but we've steered the economy through this. We are the party of sound financial management. Stick with us. But I have to say, sitting here right now, it looks like a very stark and difficult challenge for Sunak to pull off. Pippa, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That was Pippa Crera, our political editor. I do highly recommend you follow Pippa's reporting and more from our politics team at theguardian.com. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Natalie Khatena and Lucy Hoff. Sound design is by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.